Welcome to the podcast for Sunday, November 5th, 2017. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I drive a 2012 Honda Accord, and one of the things that's important to me, I'm not a car guy, but I'm a music guy. So I love having good music on when I'm driving. Uh, This is what the interior of my car looks like. Uh, The digital display for the radio, CDs, Sirius XM channels, and my iPod uh, is is listed directly above the two center vents there. It's kind of hard to see in this picture. But I've come quite reliant now in this modern age of when a song is played to want to know who's singing it, uh, what's the name of the title, and maybe what album it's from, and I can see all of that on the display. Well, the other night I was driving home from church, and this is what came on the display. No, you can see I was listening to Sirius XM Channel 2. The station is called Hits 1. It plays new music that's popular, and usually the song uh, name or the artist or the album title is listed directly below the channel, but this time it was a phone number, and I thought, well, that's kind of strange. I, I remember when we had the hurricanes in, uh, in, in Houston and in Florida that they would occasionally put up a phone number to call so that you could donate to the American Red Cross, but I wasn't sure what special fundraiser they were having. Well, it turns out um, that 1-800-273-8255 is actually the song's title, Uh, It's from the artist Logic, from his new album, Everybody, featuring Alicia Cara and Khalid. It has some raw language in it, but here is part of the lyrics. I just want to die. I don't want to be alive. I don't want to be alive. I just want to die. And the artist chose the title as because that's the number of the suicide prevention line in the United States. And so uh, by the end of the song, it says... I want you to be alive. You don't got to die today. I want you to be alive. You don't got to die today. 25 million Americans suffer from depression every year. More Americans uh, suffer from depression than coronary heart disease, cancer, and HIV and AIDS combined. 50% of all people who die by suicide suffer from major depression. And if you add in alcoholics who are also depressed, that figure swells to 75% of all suicides. Currently, one person in the United States takes their life every 12 minutes. That's 121 Americans every day. And yet, depression is one of the most treatable of psychiatric illnesses, with 80 to 90% of people responding, of depressed people responding positively to treatment, and almost all gain some kind of relief from their symptoms. Welcome to the fourth week in our series entitled Praying with Giants. And today, we begin our story with a biblical giant who most likely would have been diagnosed at this point in the story as clinically depressed. But more about that in a moment. Each week during this series, we're looking at a different giant of faith from the Bible. Abraham, Moses, Solomon, Daniel, Jesus, and today, Elijah. And, And then we're looking at one of their prayers rather closely. Not just the words that they say to God and what God says back, but the whole narrative story that underlines what prompted the prayer in the first place. So, I invite you to grab your Bible or take the Red Pew Bible in front of you or even open the Bible app on your cell phone, which, by the way, you hear me say that every week, right? Open the Bible app on your cell phone. If you don't have a Bible app on your cell phone, I'd like to suggest a free app called YouVersion. You can download it, uh, uh, and it has a number of different versions of the Bible. 
Plus, it comes with devotions and reading plans in order to help you uh, strengthen up your your Bible reading muscles. Uh, But it's free, and you can have it on your phone. So, however you like to follow, turn with me to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 19. The book of 1 Kings is in the Old Testament. It's about one-fourth of the way through the entire Bible. And we're going to begin this epic story at 1 Kings 19, verse 4. 1 Kings 19, Verse 4. But Elijah himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a solitary broom tree. He asked that he might die. It's enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. And I wonder if you can hear the song refrain, I just want to die today. I don't want to be alive. Now, I don't want to gloss over how serious this is, so allow me to paint the picture for you. As the sun's heat was pounding down in the wilderness, the barren landscape with just a few rocks was being baked mercilessly. Sitting under the only tree in sight, or more appropriately slumping under the only tree in sight, sat Elijah. And had anyone come across him, it would have been obvious that he'd been traveling for some time. His clothes are drenched with perspiration, his hair sweaty and matted, his feet sprawled out before him, his arms lying limp on the ground, his head and shoulders dreadfully sag as as if he was carrying more of the weight than just his lanky frame provided. His eyes, it may sound strange, but it seemed as though they had a mix of anger and resignation. And he just sat there gazing out into the nondescript landscape, staring, staring. There were no doctors on hand to tend to his physical or mental conditions that day, just one man sitting under one tree with the sun bearing down on them both. And then looking up, he cries out, that's it, I give up, I'm useless, just kill me now, God, just kill me now. And his thoughts of suicide and worthlessness dance in his head, Elijah curls up beneath that broom tree and falls asleep. So who was this man named Elijah? What drove him to this desperation. You won't believe his incredible story. It all starts a few chapters back in 1 Kings 19. So you want to flip back to 1 Kings 19. We're going to start at verse 1. Now Elijah, excuse me, Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. This is the very first mention of Elijah anywhere in the scriptures. Ahab was the king of Israel at this time. He had married a Phoenician princess named Jezebel. She was not one to be messed with. Jezebel was the devotee of the Phoenician god Baal. Baal was the bringer of rain and fertility and the highest ranking god in Phoenicia. And for her wedding gift, Jezebel asked her husband that worship of Baal be made the official religion of of Israel. And just to be sure that people understood how she felt about things, Jezebel executed all of the priests of Yahweh that she could find. Needless to say, many of the people, especially those who lived in and around the court in the capital, they quickly switched their religious loyalties. And shrines to Baal were erected all over the kingdom. So as a response to this uh, false worship that was taking place, God sent Elijah to announce the upcoming drought on the entire nation. 
which is actually quite humorous, uh, considering the fact that Baal was supposedly the storm god, right? Well, during these uh, three next years, it didn't rain. And you have to wonder what it was like to go to worship at, at the storm god's shrines when there was no storms happening at all. During those three years, Elijah kept a low profile and stayed out of the way of Queen Jezebel. And then in chapter 18, God tells Elijah, okay, the drought is going to be over. I want you to go and talk to the king. So we're in chapter 18, verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, it is you, you troubler of Israel. And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, have all of Israel assemble for me at Mount Carmel with 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Okay, so it was now on, right? God versus Baal, or actually, God versus Baal and Asherah. They were both uh, Phoenician gods. And just looking at the numbers, it was staggering, 850 to 1. And so the people of Israel gathered on Mount Carmel that day, and I'm sure they came for a a great show, right? A great spectacle. This was long before World Series games. We're not going to talk about Game 7. Or (laughs) Super Bowl competitions long before tractor pulls and UFC fighting. And I'm guessing there were not many of them that came with their Yahweh's number one foam fingers because the people were kind of undecided, They had divided loyalties. You see, they had been worshiping multiple gods, and it had become so common they didn't see what the problem is. Yeah, we're worshiping God and a few others just to make sure we got all our bases covered. Well, Elijah addressed the people on the mountain. Verse 21. How long will you go limping with two different opinions? If Yahweh the Lord is God, then follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. It seems a simple enough question, doesn't it? Who are you going to serve? What's it going to be, God or Baal? But many of them must not have seen it as an either-or question. Why do we have to choose? Serving both has been a way of life for so long. Why decide? What did the people say? Verse 21, the people did not answer him a word. And sometimes to make no choice is to choose. And they chose Baal. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had told the Israelites back on Mount Horeb when Moses brought down the Ten Commandments, they were to have no other gods but the Lord. God demands exclusive loyalty. Anything less doesn't cut it. And the people did not answer him a word. So Elijah sets up the ground rules for today's competition. There were to be two bulls. The priests of Baal could choose which bull they liked best. Each group would take a pile of wood. They would cut up their bull. They would place it on the wood pile. They would not bring any fire to the altar. And then each set of prophets would call out to their god. And whichever god was able to light the wood on fire and to burn up the bulls, well, that would be the one true god. And for the first time, the people respond and say, well spoken. All right, that sounds like a good deal. Bring it on. Let's see this competition, they say. Well, the prophets of Baal were up first. They chose their bull. They cut it up. They set it upon the pile of wood. And all morning long, they moved around the altar crying out, Oh, Baal, answer us. Oh, Baal, answer us. 
And they danced and they sang and they said these words over and over again for hours on end, but no fire came. Not even a few sparks. There was nothing. So Elijah throws in a little trash talking, right? Which gets them even more upset. And they start cutting themselves to prove to Baal how serious they are about their demands and their prayers. But again, no voice, no answer, no response, no fire. And eventually the prophets of Baal fall down exhausted. So now it's Elijah's turn. But before he prepares the bull, he does something first. He creates an altar for the Lord. He calls the people together. He stacks 12 large stones on top of each other, one stone for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. He reminds the people of who and whose they are. And then he digs this big trench around the altar. He stacks up the wood. He cuts the bull into pieces. He places it on the wood. And then he asks the people to bring four big ceremonial jars full of water. Now, remember, this is in the middle of what? A drought. Who just happens to have four large jars of water laying around? Evidently, they did. He brings them up, has them pour it over the altar, and then he does it two more times. So now we've got 12 large jars of water that have drenched the wood. And anyone that's gone camping knows wood doesn't light very easily when you get it all wet. So much water that the trench all around is now filled. It's kind of like a moat keeping people out from the altar. And then Elijah He asked God to turn the people's hearts back to the Lord. And immediately, the the, uh, author tells us, fire pours down from heaven. Not only is the the wood lit on fire, the the bull burns up, and all of the water in the trench evaporates because it's so hot. Verse 39. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord indeed is God! The Lord indeed is God! Yeah, like, what took you so long, people? Now, in the aftermath that follows, the prophets of Baal and Asherah are killed by Elijah's command. That's the stakes when it comes to the winner-take-all mountaintop competition. That's what Jezebel had done to the prophets of Yahweh earlier. Elijah tells King Ahab that the drought will now be over, and sure enough, dark, ominous clouds appear on the horizon followed by a heavy rainstorm, and all would seem to be right in Israel once again. But not really. Then we get to chapter 19, which is where our reading started for today. Ahab goes home. He gives his wife Jezebel the play-by-play of what happened at the amazing event on top of Mount Carmel. And she is less than pleased that all of her priests have been put to the sword. She is the true dark, ominous cloud in Elijah's life as we see at verse 2. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life like the life of one of them, the priests of Baal and Asherah that have been killed, by this time tomorrow. Then Elijah was afraid. He got up and fled for his life. He came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. So she just promised that within 24 hours, Elijah will be dead. Or she'll be dead in the process. And now we're back to here, which is where our reading started. Or was it here? And that was a really long path to get to the point of where we were when we started our reading, right? But it's of vital importance so you can know the context in which Elijah comes to this moment of depression and suicidal thoughts. And many of us have been there, haven't we? 
Maybe not to the point of actually contemplating suicide, but we've all reached the end of our rope at one time or another, right? We've all been overwhelmed by the circumstances surrounding our lives, whether it was an unexpected medical diagnosis or the ending of a relationship, the loss of a job, the death of a loved one, the frustration of a self-destructive family member, maybe just the challenges of trying to make ends meet day in and day out. But you know what the Bible teaches about these times? When we're at our weakest, when we feel like we can't go on, when there seems to be no way forward, at least from our perspective, that's when God does his best work in us. Sometimes it's only after we've done all we can and we've exhausted all of the resources we could possibly imagine, all of our junk gets out of the way, and then we get to the place where God can be God in our lives. That's exactly where Elijah was. We're told that God sent an angel to take care of him under that broom tree. He was given a simple meal of cake and water. And after sleeping some more, Elijah woke to find a second meal awaiting him. Chapter 19, verse 7. The angel of the Lord came a second time, touched Elijah, and said, Get up and eat, otherwise the journey will be too much for you. He got up, ate, and drank, and then he went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, to the Mount of God. At that place, he came to a cave, and he spent the night there. God gives us what we need. God gives us what we need. And for Elijah, that involved food and water and a lot of sleep. And sometimes that's a blessing that God gives to us as well. But Elijah has decided to journey to the place where Israel received their identity, Mount Horeb. This was the place where Moses received the Ten Commandments from God. This was the place where God made his covenant with the people of Israel. This is where Israel received their identity and was called into relationship. Evidently, Elijah wanted some of that clarity in his life as well. And now, finally, we come to the prayer that we're going to study this week. Verse 9, the word of the Lord came to him saying, what are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. So basically, if you want a, a, a Cliff Notes version of this prayer, it is, woe is me, Right? Does not seem to be what he's saying. All these terrible things have happened to me, God. I was just doing what you asked me to do. Why has this happened? Look at where it's got me. Verse 11a. God said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. So God decides, okay, it's time for a face-to-face. I need you to come out of the cave so that we can experience each other, God says. And, And then we have one of those most iconic God moments in the, no, in the Old Testament. Uh, biblical scholars will tell you this is a theophany. This is your word for the day. Take it home. Use it in a sentence. Impress your friends. Theophany, a place where God shows up. 11b. Now there was a great wind, so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks and pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. Now, what do the first three activities have all in common? They're they're all occasions that the insurance industry would call acts of God, right? 
Heavy winds, earthquakes, fires, and they're also ways that God appears to people throughout the Old Testament. All legitimate ways, legitimate theophanies, if you will, in the Old Testament. But this time, God is not present in any of those events. It was the sound of sheer silence that God finally used to reveal himself to Elijah. Verse 13a, when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Now, we don't really know what this means in Hebrew. The NRSV calls it a sound of sheer silence. The NIV says it's a gentle whisper. The King James Version says a still, small voice. Biblical scholar Walter Brueggemann says that God met Elijah through an eerie silence laden with a sense of holiness. I love that. Silence laden with a sense of holiness. We all need more moments of silence in our lives. Sometimes we have to tune out the noise and distraction of life, especially in the midst of the drama that we're going through, right? And when we do that, we often hear God more clearly. That's why scripture journaling is an important part of my prayer time. It's reading the Bible devotionally, listening for God's words to speak to me through the quiet reading of scripture. And once again, God asks Elijah the same question he asked a few verses earlier. What are you doing here, Elijah? Verse 14. He answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. It sounds like he's just saying the exact same prayer that he did a few verses before, right? He's standing in the presence of God, the creator of the universe, the author and finisher of all life, and he has not changed a bit. He feels he is still the victim here. This is not what he signed up for. He's wallowing in self-pity. Anyone ever been there? I think we all have, right? And God in his infinite patience just listens. Just listens to Elijah. As if to say, are you done yet? Did you get it all off your chest? Anything else you want to just throw it out there? I can handle it. Tell me what you're worried about. And then after Elijah is done, God responds. Verse 15. Then the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael as king over Aram. Also, you shall anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And you shall anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, of Abimeholah, as prophet in your place. So God lets Elijah complain and whine and have a little pity party with himself. And then God says, okay, now it's time to go. It's time to get going. Go back to the conflict. Go back to the trouble. Go back to the risk. There's still work to be done, Elijah. Now, we don't have time to get into the details of this particular set of instructions, but anytime a new king is anointed, uh, the current kings aren't going to be too happy about the new anointing. So there's danger in these commands. And did you notice that God has found someone to take Elijah's place, a man named Elisha, no relation, Uh, He's going to have to train him before he can retire, of course. But God has just told Elijah, you know, you're not as indispensable as you might think you are. Oh, yeah, and there's one more thing, God says, verse 18. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Elijah thought he was the only one left, the only one that had been faithful to God 
But God gently informs Elijah, actually, there's still 7,000 that haven't gone over to the dark side, right? The kingdom of God is alive and well. Elijah has compatriots in the journey that he didn't even know existed. Isn't that the case? God always has more resources up his sleeves than we're aware of. Elijah came to the wilderness with a severe case of depression and burnout, but he's leaving with a renewed sense of purpose. Psychologists tell us that one of the ways people with depression are often helped is that they're given something to do for others, a new focus, a new opportunity. Elijah's success can't be measured by how many converts he makes, how many thank you notes he gets from the people of Israel. For Elijah and for us, success simply means being faithful to God's call in our lives. Friends, the Bible never promises us that following God will exempt us to have to face any trials and tribulations in this life. Far from it. But God is with us through the ups and the downs that we'll encounter. God knows what we need even before we ask. And God's resources are abundant, far more abundant than we can possibly imagine. And sometimes, the biggest gift God can give us is good food and some extra hours of sleep. And a safe place to get all our gripes out and our pet peeves off our chest because God is big enough to handle anything that we might pray. Anything. Even our incessant whining. But God also knows what it is we need most. And God knew, as he did with Elijah, uh, that sometimes what we need most is just get back out there in the midst of the conflict, in the midst of the trouble, in the midst of the challenges, but with a new sense of purpose. So if you're having trouble connecting with God, if you're unclear of what God wants you to do at this point in your life, if you're not sure that God even knows what it is that you're going through, I invite you to stop paying attention to the storms and the earthquakes and the fires of this world and instead, in the silence, listen for God. In the words of the Bible, listen for God. Whatever, wherever it is that you fall down exhausted... Listen for God, because God still speaks every day. Thanks be to God for the witness and prayer of Elijah and the chance we have to learn from him, because often we are so much like him.